0: This is On Being's Unhurt Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Imani Perry. She's a professor at the Center for African American Studies of Princeton University. I spoke with her on August 5th, 2014, at the Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Imani Perry at OnBeing.org.
1: Good afternoon. In the interest of time, I'm going to begin announcements just a moment early so that we can allow our special guests to have the benefit of the full allotted time. So we uh, welcome you all to this 2 o'clock Interfaith Lecture Series. I'm Robert Franklin, Director of the Department of Religion. A few quick announcements. Audio recordings of today's lecture will be available at the amphitheater gazebo later this afternoon. Video discs may also be ordered at the gazebo and picked up later. You've already heard the announcement about representatives from Chautauqua Dialogues that will be on hand in front of the Hall of Mission. Please take advantage of that wonderful opportunity to meet on Friday at 3:30 to discuss all of the week's two o'clock interfaith lectures and presentations. However, you must sign up to be given a location. Social hours will be held in all denominational houses this afternoon at 3.15, and all are welcome. Would-be knitters are invited to a knitting workshop at 4.30 on the Methodist House front porch. This this weekly event is co-sponsored by Women for Women Knitting for Peace. Bible study at the Methodist House will not be held this evening because of the old first night celebration in the amphitheater at 7.30. Finally, would like you all to know and take special note of the fact that this program will be simulcast today, now, 2 o'clock in the Interfaith, uh, in the Hall of Christ. And that happens daily, and this seems like a, an opportune time to be there uh, if you can and if you're not under the roof. I'm also asked to uh, alert those who are under the trees to be advised that that is not necessarily a good place to be should we find ourselves in a lightning storm. And we would invite you to take refuge in the Hall of Christ or on one of the area porches as well. Please exercise, due caution, look out for your neighbor as we take appropriate precautions in this uh, inclement weather. So these are the events of the Department of Religion. I will not uh, introduce our two extraordinary speakers, I think Krista Tippett will do so, but I cannot resist not acknowledging that just two weeks ago the White House awarded her a National Humanities Medal. We're all very proud of Krista Tippett. We certainly look forward to our conversation with Dr. Imani Perry, one of the nation's leading public intellectuals, and one of the few people I know who holds a PhD and a JD from Harvard University. You'll also be pleased to know that immediately following this program, Dr. Perry will be doing a book signing on the porch of the Hall of Missions, and her books will be sold there as well. We're most grateful to the Joan Brown Campbell Department of Religion Endowment, which provides funding for this week's Interfaith Lecture Series. So please join me now as we welcome Krista Tippett and Imani Perry.
0: Thank you, Dr. Franklin. It's so great to be back. I I feel like I'm seeing a wilder side of Chautauqua that I haven't seen before. I've only been here on flaccid, sunny days. Um, We'll have the same format we had yesterday. We'll have a conversation up here for about 45 minutes. Then we'll open it up for a conversation with you and then I'll bring it back here at the end. And we are taping this for a possible broadcast later in the year on On Being. And I'm so happy that Imani Perry made her way to us today. Imani Perry is a professor at the Center for African American Studies at Princeton University and a faculty associate in the law and public affairs program there. She writes about law, culture and she is a scholar of law, culture and race and writes about all three topics regularly. Her books include Prophets of the Hood, Politics and Poetics in Hip Hop, and More Beautiful and More Terrible. The Embrace and Transcendence of Racial Inequality in the United States. In that work, in a kind of response to this week's Chautauqua theme of the American Consciousness, Imani Perry notes that there are wise and erudite voices who say that we will never get to the promised land of racial equality. She writes, that may very well be true, But it is also true that extraordinary things have happened and keep happening in our history. The question is, and I think this is a terrific question for us to take up today, how do we prepare for and precipitate them? So Imani, I want to start um, just by, I wonder if you tell us about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood. You know, however, however you would describe that now.
2: So, I am um, what you would call a cradle Catholic.
0: A what? Cradle Catholic. Cradle Catholic.
2: Um, But emerging out of, so my um, grandmother's home parish is the Josephite parish, and Josephites went to minister specifically to African Americans. Um, And so, I was baptized Catholic, but it was in the midst of a kind of... Radical and liberation is theology. You in economics. Alabama? I was born in Alabama. Yeah, you were born yes, in Alabama. Yes, but I was actually baptized in Boston. Okay. Sort of moved back and forth between the two, but that was my uh, birthplace. Yeah. Um, and so I had a, um, I've had a deep connection to the celebration of mass, uh, and yet a very kind of ecumenical and broad perspective about theology that is connected to um, kind of Goals Hang on, of liberation. Just a Are we getting worried about wet? the microphones <laughs> getting
0: wet? Mitch, are we okay? Okay, all right. Is it okay? Okay. <laughs> we don't want to get electrocuted up here.
2: So yeah. So um, so I'm a person of faith, although not of doctrine per se, and that's sort of the approach that my parents took. My father was Jewish, but did not uh, oh, really? practice. Yeah. Um, yeah so. Um, uh, and I guess, for me, it is, it's always been sort of what kinds of spiritual celebrations speak to me as opposed to adopting a particular ideology, I feel the presence of God, I, I feel transformed when I go to Mass and that's sort of the, um, the scope of it.
0: Yeah. yeah. You, and then you went to a Quaker school, did that? I did. did that? Flow it all into your spiritual sensibility? You know, it
2: did. I mean, in terms of a kind of quiet meditation centering, and my children are also in a Quaker school now, I think, yeah, so that kind of, and also a kind of religious education that is tied to a social justice ethics, I think is important, was important for me, and it's something that I'm hoping um, to impart on them as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Can you hear, are you? No, no. I don't. You can't hear at all. Not at all. No. I don't. I don't know where Dr. Franklin is. I'm not. What do? Do we just need to keep going, or is there something else in here at three thirty? Or there is a 3:30 program
1: okay. uh-huh.
0: I mean, I I can get this for radio, but it's not the experience for here. I. Keep going. Okay. Okay. All right. Um so Yeah, turn up the mic. Okay, we're we have experts working on it back there. Can you hear me? Okay. So I think I'm just leaning into the Okay. So I should lean in a bit, bit more. Okay. Um there's this, there are these beautiful lines um, of words of James Baldwin at the beginning of your book, More Beautiful and More Terrible, The Embrace and Transcendence of Racial Inequality in the United States. And he said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. Um, and I want to kind of ease into that idea through your life story as one lens on this American history and you know your upbringing as you just started to tell us was you know you describe it it sounds very joyful and rich on so many levels but also contradictory and I think confusing as a child I mean you talk about you know interracial parentage and also salt of the earth blackness of multi-class identity Um, T- take us a little bit inside, um, your story as a prism on this complexity of America. Sure, so um, so
2: I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, as I said already, and my grandmother was my primary caretaker in the first couple of years, um, although I lived with my parents, but she took care of me during the days. Um, and she was a woman who worked as a domestic. She was? As domestic. Okay. And and kind um, of affluent people's households in, in Alabama. She came from the country to the city as a teenager, um, and so as a kind of cultural foundation, kind of.
3: Okay. Um, Which, I don't.
0: Sorry, talking. I just don't want us to. How can the weather not be supporting us up here? Should
3: I keep, should I keep?
0: Okay. Mitch, where are you? Can you, are we, are we recording or okay? Okay. Okay. So All right, so we think this loud rain is going to pass in 10 or 15 minutes. We don't know that. We're, okay, let's just start praying or something. And it's possible. And we'll also get some different microphones on us which I think will make it easier to hear,
3: Okay. okay.
0: Okay, um, Dr. Franklin says he thinks the prayers are working, but I think one of Reinhold Niebuhr's famous sermons was about the futility of praying for the weather to change. Um, (laughs) He may have even preached it at Chautauqua, who knows. Okay, so, but we think it's a little bit quieter and we're holding the mics, which we're told will make a difference and it makes us feel like singers. Yes. <laughs> and I think Imani especially really looks like a really cool singer.
2: But I, but I don't sound very good, so. Oh okay,
0: wait, is her mic? Oh, my mic sound? my mic's on? Your
2: mic's Hello? on. Hello?
0: Now it is. Okay, yeah. good. No, you sound great. <laughs> All right, um, we're just gonna tough this out. We were talking about the, the way your upbringing had so many strains in it of the American story that haven't always gone together.
2: Yes. So, um, so as I was saying, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, nine years after the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church, just a couple of miles away from there, um, reared in a kind of traditional black, southern, working-class family, um, but my grandmother was also, or and was also, was an extraordinary woman who uh, made sure all twelve of her children went to college, um, read every single day, um, had this kind of. Um, she was kind of an organic feminist, um, deeply mm-hmm. independent. And then um, my mother was an intellectual; she was a philosopher initially, and. Uh, and an activist. She had been um, a nun at first. Oh, she had. And then she, she joined the convent <laughs> and then realized that wasn't the calling for her, that the movement was the calling for her. Um, and actually she met... I was raised by um, my adoptive father who she met actually before I was born. And so he was my father um, over the course of my entire life. He just passed several—passed away a couple of weeks ago. So I'm wow. still um, grieving. Um, he was... A Jewish man from Brooklyn came from out of the kind of working class neighborhood in Flatbush and had become uh, an activist was moved and decided to go down south with his PhD from Yale decided to go down south and teach in a historically black college and then in a high school and so and they continued to have over the course of my life um, give me a wide array of encounters and experiences so I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts and lived there um, in old Cambridge, right and, near Harvard heart. did your mother University. go to
0: Harvard then at that point?
2: Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. She was a doctoral student at Harvard. Um, I spent, later on, spent summers with my dad in Chicago after they split. Um, and he had me first in a camp that was largely Latino, largely Mexican immigrants, many who were undocumented. It was a Jane mm-hmm. Adams Hull house. Um, and then at New City YMCA, which was a camp that was across the street from um, the Cabrini Green Housing Projects, which were notorious in Chicago. So I had, and at the same time, you know, I'm going back to school and I'm having a Quaker education, and so I'm having a multi-class, multi-racial experience over the course of my childhood alongside having parents who were deeply committed to social justice, and so they were always pushing me to think about what these different experiences
0: in this country meant. Right. right. Um, you, you, you went to, um, to the Concord Academy. I did. Which was a, a, privi- a privileged place to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things you said is that you were the second generation of black children in elite white schools.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but you said the knowledge... So, so you had a place there, but the knowledge of how to navigate such places had not been passed on to you.
2: Right. So, and I, I think um, the knowledge of how to advocate an elite prep school hadn't been passed on to me in part because my parents hadn't um, had that particular experience, although my mother had gone to Catholic schools, but it was a very different sort of Southern black Catholic yeah. um, experience. Um, but also there wasn't a kind of institutional knowledge. I think the numbers really increased post-1970s in these sort of elite New England prep schools, Um, but they hadn't yet really figured out how to embrace diversity, um, both in terms of academic content, but also in terms of helping us all develop a sense of ownership of the school. So not just being a visitor, but it belonging to
0: us. Which is kind of what the entire, like, every institution, every American institution was going through at that point. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you have this lovely phrase that you used about these contradictions. You talked about finding the sweet and the bitter. Yeah. How do you, tell me, tell us what you mean by that.
2: Well, I, um, it's actually a phrase that I shared with a lot of um, younger students of color who came through prep schools because I, th- you know, they could be embittering in, in experiences being in, in those places and oftentimes not just hostility from classmates. And I went to a progressive school that, um, where people loved me and embraced me and I loved my school as well, but also there was hostility in the town. You know, we got called a lot of unpleasant names when we walked down the street in town. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean... You know, there's this this image that the South is the worst place for that, but um, Massachusetts can be pretty bad with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, and then there was also, you know, there were some teachers who were very hostile to the idea of diversifying the curriculum. And so when you'd have a book by an African-American author, I had, there was one teacher who said, well, we're not going to talk about this in class. You know, so there was there were multiple ways that even in a school that had committed itself to diversity was, was struggling. And so for me, it was finding the sweet and the bitter was not to dismiss the reality that um, there were a number of painful experiences associated with being at school, but also to not allow that to prevent me from finding joy, mm-hmm. right? And building meaningful relationships and also taking possession of the school, so uh, you know, when I ran for senior class president, I wasn't saying to myself, "Well, they've never had someone who looks like me as senior class president." Now I knew that you know, not everybody was going to be enthusiastic about that, but um, but I also knew that I belonged in the institution.
0: Um, you also tell this great story um, about. Uh, Taking an aerobics class, which was the thing people did back then, it was it was like the 70s, versus 80s yoga, yeah, the 80s, Um, and the music that accompanied it, which was not your music, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or didn't, did, you know, yeah, and but then that you tuned in to these late night shows, you discovered hip hop, and you say, and I listened, and and you listened in, I listened in on the generation to which I belonged. So tell us about what hip-hop means to you Uh and meant to you. Wow. Um, So there's a sense, and I think this is
2: particularly true for the children of 60s and 70s activists, but I think it can be a a more generalized sense, that um, we sort of came to the party late. You know we missed the we missed the revolution, we missed the excitement, we missed the activism, we missed the movement yeah. um, and there 's a sense I think that we lived with a nostalgia for a time that wasn 't our own uh, and for you know what hip hop gave to me was and this is before it was on the radio and actually, and before it was the way it is now, frankly um, it was much had much stronger political content, much more social commentary. Much more. I mean, it felt like an eruption Mm. into um, the world of uh, Reaganomics and um, deindustrialization, and all of the suffering that was being felt. I think throughout across the country, and particularly in urban centers. And here was a music that was articulating a voice, right? That um, that was challenging the world, right? Listen to me. Listen to us. Raise questions. All those sorts of things. And so. Um, you know, for me, it felt like this is my moment, right a mo- you know, I thought I had missed it, and here huh. um, here was something um, that emerged f- um, in my time, and I, I guess I also um, it was for me a conduit because I was in Pradda and educationally, except with the exception of the summers and holidays. I was in predominantly uh, upper-class white environments, and it was a sort of, I could hear the sounds of my, my home, original home community, or I could hear the sounds of um, a sort of a culture that I was part of but was consistently removed from and going back and forth, and so uh, it was incredibly nourishing. Um, and it also, you know, the love of language... Um, uh, the play with language for someone who was a voracious reader really captivated me. Mm. Um, I, you know, it, it was exciting to ha- hear popular culture um, embracing the kinds of words that I was trying to, you know, figure out in school as well. So um, it was very, very important for my development.
0: So I think we'll, we'll come back to hip hop in a moment. Um, you went to, arrived at Harvard in 1994. you you got a J.D. and a Ph.D., which was unusual, and probably still is unusual. Um, And it was also, as you know, in the 90s, that scholarship um, was really becoming alert to the fact that, as you say, we were failing in our equality mission. Mm -hmm. You know, enough years had passed after that heyday of the Civil Rights Movement. And... um, you know, the promised land had not been reached. Mm-hmm. Um, was that informing? You know, you you kind of have to do this as a scholar you, and as thinker. You kind of do this fusion of culture and race and the law. Was 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 that backdrop playing into your bringing those things together in your own thought? Um, somewhat. You know, I. I
2: went to law school because I was trying to figure out how the world worked, how power worked, and st- something about structure. So I said, well, I either, I'll either study economics or go to law school, and um, law school was more appealing, and partly was appealing to me because of Lonnie Guineer. Um, yes. And so... She was, the first, she was the first professor at Harvard Law School. First. She she was although she wasn't there when I was applying to law arrived. school but the the um, whole kerfluffle with her attorney general nomination had yeah had taken place and so and I was just so taken by someone who could upset so many people by being a scholar <laughs> so I said oh well that, that yeah. you know um uh and I think so I was trying to figure out the way the world worked and also interested in how um, we can look to two different things that you find in culture one is that. Um, in cultural spaces you see a a commentary upon kind of social conditions um, and often at the level of aesthetics and so I was interested in examining that um, as well as sort of the politics of race generally. So doing both degrees was a way of getting at all of that although my dissertation was on late 19th century property and contract law oh. and literature. So, <laughs> uh, but it, it was about race, but it was going back much further. So it was less, although that was also the moment where you saw the rise of the black public intellectual was sort of right as I was going to graduate school. So everybody was sort of thinking about that, these sort of public intellectuals. Like were Cornell West? Cornel West, Skip Gates, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 And Lonnie Guineer was Lani part Guinier. of that too. Yeah. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, there was a, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know this idea, of one's work, um, if not should be relevant, but the question about whether it should be relevant, I think, was in my mind and in the mind of many of my mm-hmm. peers as well.
0: So I want to talk about your um, your I don't want to call it an argument. I want you know your, your thesis, your mm-hmm. an idea that you have proposed um, that we think of ourselves in a time of post intent racism um, or that we are in post intent times, so describe what you know what you 're defining there, what that is coming in over against right so okay so so the my
2: book starts with this premise that on the one hand, we're a society where everybody is committed to racial equality. You know, it's it's generally considered bad taste, bad form, unpleasant. And you unpleasant really do, to, and
0: you really do take that seriously. I, I do do, absolutely do. Yeah. take it seriously. Yeah.
2: And yet, you know, in every area that you measure, you see not just the evidence of the persistence of inequality, but that people act in ways that disadvantage certain groups on the basis of race. Mm-hmm. Right, and most heavily, this is directed towards. Black people, Black Americans, um, in the United States, and so, um, so for me the question is, well, what's happening? Why, why is this? Why, why this disjuncture between our stated purposes and our behavior? Um, and rather than saying, I think people are disingenuous, I'm actually, I actually spent time to try and figure out what was actually motivating the behavior to disadvantage. And I think it has a lot to do with um, not just racial stereotypes, but narratives. Um, and uh, categories and ways that we describe different spatial relationships and I, you know I, I get well, this what one. do you mean by that spatial relationships so for example well it's just the, the simple term bad neighborhood oh. or ghetto right and um, the lesson to avoid those places that the the way that they're described as, um, as in really sensationalistic terms dangerous, disordered, chaotic um, and how that is connected to deep disinvestment, right? It has economic consequences.
0: And do you think that um, that our use of that language itself then makes those things more true Absolutely. to the extent there's a reality behind it? It intensifies that reality.
2: Yes, and it also dictates behavior, right? Mm-hmm. So that if you believe, you know, if there's a narrative. So, for example. Um, For me, this is such a powerful example because you always hear this, and politicians say this frequently, there's this image that um, black youth believe that doing well in school is acting white, and people say this all the time, and it's simply not true. And so anyone who does comprehensive research on the subject says that's not, in fact, true. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, there's the same kind of value for education, so really the different outcomes has to do with inequality of opportunity or resources. And yet... This myth is so powerful that it gets trotted out again and again. And so I think, you know, and, and the consequences of the kind of mythology are that then people interact with these youth in ways where they presume that they're not invested in education, right? So it dictates, you know, these, these narratives, these images, these cat- they dictate behavior, they guide us. And I say us because it's a cultural problem. It's not a kind of binary problem, this race and that race. It's a cultural practice that we all learn um, living in this
0: society. And I find this so much more helpful language. I mean, you are talking about structural racism, right? Mm -hmm. That's one label to put on this. But that also makes it abstract. Yes. And, you know, you're taking out this... This, uh, you know, this, this, this um, motive. You're, you know, you're, you're saying. I mean, you're 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 explaining on a very human level how one can not experience oneself to be racist, mm-hmm. um, be against racism, and yet behave in ways that support um, that that lack of opportunity and that belittlement of other human beings.
2: Right, and I think you know. It- I say post-intent also because for me, um, I also want to get away from concentrating so much about on what's in people's hearts, you know, because I want to focus in, instead on the consequences for those who are subject to inequality. So I say post-intent, meaning that that's not really what we want to focus on, whether or not someone meant it. We want to focus on how people behave. How can we help people behave in, in better ways, in more generous ways, in more equitable fashion? Um, and you should, because we see, you know, there's both intentional and unintentional. Right. But the point is the consequence,
0: right? Right. Yeah. And that's what yeah. we have. And what this also gets at for me, I mean, something I think about a lot as a journalist, as a person in media, is um, we so rarely hear the whole story about anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, about anything, we, we, because of the way we've defined news in the last hundred years, we hear about the extraordinarily bad part of politics, economics, mm-hmm. education, or other kinds of people. Um, I mean, another example you've used in your writing is the South Bronx, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, just the South Bronx. I think, you know, n- many of us will have associations that come to mind with how, you know, what kinds of statistics or or bad news stories that are associated with the South Bronx. But, I mean, you, you know, you've talked about, like, the two stories of the South Bronx that are both right. true for you.
2: Right. So the South Bronx is also I mean it's the the create place for the site for the creation of hip hop, but it's this incredible cosmopolitan space. There are people from all over the world who come together, right? There's a there are beautiful landscapes or were created by graffiti and, and the like. So there's, you know, this it's it's a it was uh, was and is a kind of rich, vibrant cultural space. Um, And yet, that's not part of the conversation about what the South Bronx is. Um, And the choice to describe it in one way or the other, of course, has policy consequences because if you say, well, there's nothing there so we can raise those buildings or there's nothing, you know, this has happened all across the United States. There's nothing there so we can build a highway through that community, right? Right. To talk about spaces in, in, in a diminishing way actually means that you devalue the people there and it becomes very easy to treat them and their neighborhoods as fungible.
0: Right, spaces which human beings inhabit. Yeah. Um, and also, the South Bronx is a real crucible of hip-hop movement, isn't it? Yes. Of this, this musical force, mm-hmm. which is so much bigger now than it was when you first discovered it. And I want to talk about that because, you know, you you used the word nourishing a minute ago mm-hmm. in talking about hip-hop, and that is not an adjective that would come to mind probably for most of the people in this room right. yeah. when they heard about hip-hop. I mean, you know, and I just, here's another thing that you pointed out. You, know, you said most Americans today have internalized Dr. King's belief that racism is immoral, um, but the problem remains when King said, let us be judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character, he was not prepared for the widespread impugning of black character in the 21st century. And I think this matter of mm-hmm. hip-hop, which is just such a potent image now, especially that we associate perhaps with black young men, yes, is a good example of associations made with black character.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, one of the things that's really um, difficult in terms of talking about hip-hop because on the one hand, and I, you know, earlier it was much easier for me where I could say, well this music gets scapegoated because all of the ills that we see in hip-hop we see in other forms, right? That's sort of the position I had in the 90s and the early 2000s and really, um, in in the intervening 14 years or so, right, it has become what you get on the radio are the most popular artists. Yeah. The content has become more and more narrow. It's about conspicuous consumption. It's about um, having lots of women. It's about um, kind of masculinist violence, power, that kind of thing. So it's hard for me to, and, and it actually is, I think, in some ways, the most extreme popular cultural forms of those things with the exception of action movies right now. Um, There is a much broader landscape of the music, but those artists, by and large, don't get signed to major labels. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the questions is why, and and the the vast majority of the audience for hip-hop is no longer black. Um, So one question would be to ask, you know, why is this so desirable, right? And I do think on some level it's selling fantasies of what ghetto life is like, right? Kind of purient fantasies, things that are, um, uh, you know, foreboding and exciting. And so, um, but the circulation of that fantasy absolutely has social consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that this is something that both people who do who have done scholarship on hip-hop, but also, I think, people in communities across the country are just struggling with, you know? um, How do we push back against what we are seeing in the music, even if it's
0: the music that we love? I mean, I have a 16-year-old white son Mm -hmm. who loves hip-hop. But what I notice, more than anything else, you know, he'll sometimes say, um, I'll try to listen, and he'll say, no, Mom, you're too innocent. That's not appropriate for you, right? Right. But, but what I what I see that's magic about that music is how I watch that music go all the way through his body. Oh, oh yeah, and you know, it, yes, it's popular music, but it's poetic. It abs- you yeah, absolutely, you know what I mean. There's something in it that transcends, and I really don't spend a lot of time listening to the mm-hmm. most inflammatory lyrics. But the, right. but I've learned I I don't worry about it because there's something in it that's powerful that transcends whatever, you know, the things that you could get upset about on the surface as well.
2: I think that's true of some of the music. And I do think that increasingly sound is more important than text. I think there was an earlier era in which um, the words mattered more. And I think with the rise of Southern hip-hop in particular... Um, the sound and even sort of the sound, even when someone is speaking the sound and the vocalization and what the artist is doing with the voice it, it oftentimes is more important than what they 're saying yeah. um, so I do think that 's absolutely the case, and um the play with language is always exciting irrespective yes. of the content. but I do think there is this this question though that that I think many artists have are going to be increasingly challenged to push so if If the words don't matter that much, then might you consider. Other words, hmm. <laughs> you know. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if 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 the con- particularly, I think for for women, and I think, and for me, I, this is a particular concern for women in uh, poor urban communities, and what the messages about their value, I think, is is um, somewhat alarming. But.
0: but you, I mean, one of your books is about hip hop, and mm-hmm. um, what is that? What is the name of the chapter? Something with pink in the. Oh gosh! Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a funny, <laughs> but you you struggle with the music with what's hard, challenging in the music mm-hmm. to women, but you also really find a place for strong yes. women in that music. And how old? You have two sons. Is that I right? do. And how old are they?
2: Eight and eleven. Okay. Yes. Um. And I I regulate their music quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. You know, yesterday here. Roberto Unger, who used to be your professor, he yes, profe- you taught me jurisprudence, told us that schools should be raising our children to be prophets. And the title of your book on hip hop was Prophets of the Hood. Mm-hmm. Interesting illusion. That is interesting. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, you know, and I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting challenge, and I've never thought about whether schools. Could can do that I do think that schools um, can prepare children to be problem solvers and to have ethics um, that guide them towards work um, that is meaningful in the world right I, I sort of um, and so I guess prophetic in I, I, I see what he's saying in, in uh, about sort of raising young people to be prophetic in the sense of there's a kind of preparation that will illuminate them um, in ways that can move us towards a better
3: place.
2: Yeah. Um, I think the, the way that I was using um, um, prophetic was about a kind of illumination of um, ideas um, and arguments that are in, were in places in the society that were invisible to the larger society. Right? Mm-hmm. And so in the sense that a, that a prophetic voice um, can emerge from a place that has been invisibilized, that has been obscured, um, that's what I was seeing in the music.
0: Mm. Um, I'm going to do my... Here it is. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in a public conversation with scholar of race, culture, law, and hip-hop, Imani Perry. We're speaking as part of the Chautauqua Institution's Week on the American Consciousness. So, ever since we elected an African-American president, it seems that we, you know, uh, continue to revisit the problem that we still don't know how to talk about race. Mm -hmm. Um, But, and we end up talking about it then in moments of crisis, um, and I've, I've wondered, you know, something like the Trayvon Martin shooting. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I've wondered if, you know, it seems to me that the, the moments when we then talk about it are so anguished and they seem like imperfect moments. But having said that, I started reading some of what you wrote around those events and all the way through the trial mm-hmm. and the acquittal of George Zimmerman. And I, I questioned myself whether that really was an imperfect moment mm. or whether it's as good a moment as any. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you would talk about, um, you know, what, what that, about what, is, what does that particular event or an event like that say to you about the American consciousness that it's worth all of us continuing to reflect on after the fact? So, part of what um, the murder
2: of Trayvon Martin immediately registered for me is that this is um, the sort of the ultimate fear of the mother of any black boy in this country right? um, and I think that isn 't necessarily widely understood, I mean even in the midst of the trial. Um, that the the, the concept that someone might murder your child with utter impunity and there not be a remedy is real Mm -hmm. and has been real for... And and it's not just mothers, it's fathers, it's aunts and uncles, right? But there's something particular, I think, for me as a mother mother of two boys. And also trying to explain it to them in a way that would not have them walking through life constantly terrified. Yeah right because then my older son once said to me who you know and this was in relationship to sev- several other incidents where do i go if there's trouble if the police might even kill me right you know mm-hmm. when i'm innocent right and so um so i think that that you know that's a that is, I think, a, a racial divide. I think that we have other ones with respect to the lives of undocumented children. You know, there are yeah. there are multiple um, divides in that way where we are not fully cognizant of the other the experiences that other people in our midst are having. Um, I think the moment was instructive, though devastating, um, in a number of ways. One, this need, this discourse around uh, Trayvon's innocence. Was really instructive because, and you know, and I think Americans are um, are are unhealthily obsessed with the idea of innocence. I mean, I mean, I think that's part of the impediment that we have in general with talking about race. The idea of innocence. Be, I want to be innocent. I'm not. I'm right. not this. Yeah. I'm not right. Right. And so, but I also think there was this conversation about is he innocent? Is he not? Well, he he skipped school once. He smoked marijuana. I mean, This is a way, sort of, make. Um, all of these things, which are fully human and normal for young boys, be, suddenly become ways of suggesting that he might have mer- merited being right. murdered, even that he might have fought back right so that there's this, you know there's this image that what is required to be acceptable um, as a as a black boy is a sort of image of perfection, no failure, no mistake, no error ever right. Right? otherwise. Uh, you can't be given the benefit of the doubt. I, I mean, for me, that is illustrative of one of the most powerful racial discourses, right? This idea that always being suspect, right? Always being likely to be guilty and how that sort of acts as a, a kind of, sort of hangs over mm-hmm. um, one's shoulders everywhere
0: everywhere you go. And, I read um, in what you wrote, and this is really heartbreaking, you know, that your sons wept when they heard that George Zimmerman oh, had yeah. been acquitted. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and, and also, they're... what I found, um, I don't know, comforting in a way or you helpful was you, you. One of the things you talked to them about was that you attended a rally afterward and. Mm-hmm. And you said, Look at all these people who are around us. And again, the reason I think that's important, just to note something very practical like that, is that it's worth showing up at a rally. Yes. For your sons. Mm-hmm. And I
2: think for all of us, because I think that particularly we, what you we talked about this idea of um, kind of structural racism or the abstraction or institutional racism or inequality and the like. I mean, I mean we. We are agents of our world, right, and so you know we we encounter tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and so then we can become sort of passive witnesses to all of these tragedies in our midst or we can be actively engaged, and I think that's a process of liberating oneself, to be actively engaged in the world and and, and, in the work of transforming it. Uh, I mean, so it was meaningful for them, I think, for the other people to be around, but I also think it's meaningful for them for uh, kind of growing up, becoming adults, becoming people who have some sense of civic and social responsibility, because, you know, one could also say in some ways, I can protect them from so much. They are privileged children, Right? But they, and so they have these fears, but they're also relatively privileged. And yet, my sense is that whether it has something to do directly with them or not,
0: you know, they have a responsibility in this world. Mm-hmm. I actually want to read. I, I think we'll do, we'll start, we'll open this conversation up and invite you into it. And I believe we only have one microphone that's working today, and it's this one. So if you have a question or you'd like to join this, come up there. Before we do that um, or as you might be coming up to the microphone I, I just want to dwell for a minute on this beautiful blog post you wrote around yeah. that. Um, you, you used this image, you started it by saying, have you ever seen a small plant that has a splint holding it up? Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you illuminate that image? You know, I I um,
2: I guess I think that you know part of the way the fiction of the way that we talk about the individual and identity in this country and what it means to be a citizen or a resident, just a member of a community is that is um that we are completely self created and independent, and so the sense that you know the work of nurturing development is always. Requires us to lean on someone else, or to be there for someone to lean on, to facilitate, to uh, to nurture, and I, you know, and I think that that's how we should think about not just our families, but as a, our cities, our states, our our nation. Um, we are in a moment where we are being socialized into an intense competition. I mean, I think that yes. everything is marketized. Every aspect of our lives is marketized. And it creates a lot of anxiety, right? Because we don't want to be left behind or left out. But I think the, the, the other side of that anxiety is that it really isolates us from a sense of responsibility to each other. So for me, the image, um, uh, you know, of, of, of uh, kind of holding up a, a sprout is... is um, um, powerful because that is, that's what it takes. You know, sometimes we pretend like that's not what it took for us, mm-hmm. but that's what it takes for everyone. But
0: it, I also like the image because it's... The sprout has its vitality, right? Yes. It's not, no, it's not, not passive, compensating right. yeah. for something even. No, it's, mm-hmm. it's just allowing it to come into its own inborn right. vitality. Okay. Um, yes,
1: uh, in your article uh, for The Washington Post about uh, the five myths of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, you wrote about how um, uh, some um, African Americans uh, were again not exactly against it but were one of the cost of it was giving up the uh, black professional Institution of the of the black schools. Would you expand on that?
2: Sure. So one of the things you know um, that when we talk about desegregation and Brown versus Board of Education, that is oftentimes lost out in the story uh, is that there was incredible loss of institutions you know schools in um in the segregated southwark community and community institutions um they had a uh, body you know, they the teachers and principals comprised a large portion of the black professional class Um, They had strong ethos. There were many extraordinary schools. Um, So, And the, the dominant narrative is that the schools were just terrible. Well, they were underfunded, and there weren't enough of them. But many of the schools were extraordinary. And what happened with desegregation, which was a very long process, was that rather than integrating faculty, you know, teachers, and integrating what is that... There was massive uh, loss of black professionals, teachers who lost their jobs, principals who lost their jobs, and schools remained segregated, right? Because of um, white flight or private academies and the like. And so, um, and there were people who were concerned that this was what was going to happen. They were correct. Now, I think that most people think, well, this was a sacrifice. Um, that was made by the community in order to transform the nation. Um, I think they took out that sentence in the Washington Post, but that's really how I conceive of it. And so while schools were not integrated and while many of the most important schools in many communities were lost, um, the... The other side is that all of the public facilities were were integrated, all kinds. You know, it led to the integration of higher education. Right, that point you
0: made, that that wasn't just about schools. Right,
2: no, it wasn't just about schools. And it's an example
0: of how... we, we have too shallow a memory 50 years on of mm-hmm. a lot of things about the civil rights movement. We have yes. just a few, a few names we know.
2: Right. And even the, the, to focus on the charismatic leaders as
0: opposed yes. to communities. Yes. I mean, it was really communities. And
2: they pushed the leaders yeah. um, to become what they were. Yeah. yeah.
0: Thank you so much for such a wonderful talk. I want to return to your point about the importance of language in shaping consciousness and even framing reality.
2: You mentioned how concerned you were about the devaluation of space, for example, in the South Bronx, and the role that language plays. But it seems to me perhaps you're not as concerned about the devaluation of women in hip-hop lyrics. And I feel like I'm missing something. Could you clarify, please? Oh, that's part of what I was talking about, was was absolutely... Um, the sexism and even misogyny in the lyrics—that's what I was referring to when I was saying was talking about what is happening today in the music. Okay, you—you you, you don't feel that the poetry overrides that? I guess I misheard because I—I didn't hear that as, as strong a concern. Yeah, so when I was because one of the things that I said was um, you have conspicuous consumption, you have the I, the treating of women as possessions, exploitation of women, and the like. Absolutely. Now I will say again, though. That is not characteristic of all of the music. That's who's getting signed to major labels, right? And so the responsibility doesn't just lie on hip hop. The responsibility lies on the corporations and also the consumers of the music. Right? And so for me, the question is: Why do people want to buy music that says that that communicates those messages? I think that that's an important question for us to ask ourselves.
0: First. Does- the uh, questioner stole my question, so I'm going to ask you if you could elaborate on what you feel the uh, future of for-profit education, for-profit schools, charter schools, magnet schools, all of those things is going to have the black community, and especially the lower-income areas of the country in the future.
2: Thank you. Um, so, I mean, this is, I, for me, this is, uh, I think, a really important question is we're, see- we're witnessing the privatization of public education across the country the push to charter charters um, and entire systems becoming charter systems, as, in, as is the case now in New Orleans, um, much of the conversation around it, which I think is really interesting, is around African-American and Latino children, because the conversation around pushing for education reform, which is pushing privatization, which is a neoliberal market model for education, much of that conversation is about the achievement gap, and by that they mean a racial achievement gap. Um, And as opposed to, well, we can set that aside for a moment and say we could talk about an opportunity gap instead of an achievement gap and might be talking about something that's actually more meaningful. But that said, um, one of the things that we're seeing is that any problems that we see in public education are worse when there's less regulation. And so charter schools have greater attrition rates, they have greater school suspension rates, they have greater sort of Kids, rates of pushing kids out of schools in various other sorts of ways. And so I think that um, the consequence of this move towards privatization is going to be devastating uh, for the poorest children and for um, uh, black and Latino children in general, even though there are some you know, remarkable examples of successful individual schools. When we look at the picture overall, um, I think that all of us need to be concerned with what's happening to public education.
3: um as we as we know r- racism happens on a both a structural level and a consciousness or interpersonal level and um i guess my question is maybe two parts um one if if you could see one structural thing that you'd like to see change what would it be and that would make the biggest difference for african americans right now and um the second part of it is um you know nobody wants to think of themselves as racist, but a lot of people who are white have no idea like how to be better allies. So if you could kind of magically transform our, you know, people's consciousness and like everybody could wake up going, Oh, got it. You know, something that would help people be um, a better ally. What would that be? You know,
2: I I almost – I'm going to not really answer your question because I think that it is the process – it is in the process that people are transformed, right? So um, I talked about this a couple of days ago in a talk that I think in terms of our sort of organizing efforts – Um, To the extent that we can be devoted to power sharing along lines of race, along lines of class, right? Um, That we can be committed to actually assuming that every person at the table has meaningful contribution, who has meaningful knowledge, right? That those sorts of things, I think, allow for multiracial, multiclass, able-bodied, disabled that kind of kind of community that, will, that, that allows us to be transformed and also to transform the world we live in. So I, I have such um, hesitation for any kind of magic wand solution because I think the, the way that we change is in the doing, right, um, uh, doing things in a different way. I think – but in terms of institutional structures, there's two – I mean, I I think that the Supreme Court, when it shifted its its interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment away from um, "we are going to protect groups from being subordinated to any consideration of race," is is unconstitutional. We suspect that it's likely to be unconstitutional. I think that that was incredibly damaging to the energy in the post, you know, late '60s, early '70s. Towards, so I would like to change the composition of the court, and I would like to change the way that they, they see, they interpret the 14th Amendment, but that's, um, and then the other thing is I think really out of school learning communities that are multi-generational that um, would be an incredibly important movement, I think. There are examples of them, but in all sorts of communities, right? So communities of values, I mean, I think this is a a wonderful example. But if we could really devote ourselves to creating many of those, um, I think that also would lead to great transformation.
1: Hello, and thank you very much. I'm from Rochester, New York. We're working on a Facing Race, Embracing Equity effort that gets at the structural racial biases that exist. Is there any other community or communities that you are aware of that have started a similar kind of effort and have actually made the structural changes uh, to reduce the racism in their particular, not just reduce racism, embrace equity, uh, in their particular community? And then the second question I have for you is, how does your spiritual life affect how you go on from day to day?
2: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So the first, I mean, I think there are there are many um, examples. Although not uh, the ones that immediately come to mind are not necessarily nonprofit organizations. I mean, I think that you know the way. So I can think of various kind of activist mo- movements. So um, for me, a uh, wonderful example would be there's sort of three. Three moments of the Rainbow Coalition. Most of us just know the Jesse Jackson 1988 Rainbow Coalition. But in Boston, Mel King had a Rainbow Coalition where he created alliances between workers, between LGBT communities, um, women's rights, class issues, et cetera, et cetera, and race. And so it was a model of actually doing organizing that allowed these different communities to come together on equal footing and I think that that's, that's, the, that's, the model, that's the way to do it. And I think actually institutional structures that follow from that type of organizing tend to be able to um, uh, maintain that. And then there's the first Rainbow Coalition was actually Fred Hampton, who, doesn't, who isn't imagined as someone who has that kind of vision because he emerged out of the Black Panther Party, but he actually advocated a Rainbow Coalition of, of working people of various uh, races before he was murdered. And so, um, so I think there are, there are models... Um, I think there are many models of doing so. Again, and I also think um, John McKnight's asset-based community development model of organizing suggests that um, that approach as well. Um, what's, where's that based, or what? There's books, but it's basically they have workbooks, and it. it teaches an approach to community organizing that assumes that everybody has assets and skills. It actually reminds me of. Ella Baker's organizing in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Mm -hmm. where the thought was we're not going to go to this. You know, these uh, communities in, in the Mississippi Delta and tell them what to do, we're going to facilitate the emergence of local leadership. We're going to listen to who amongst, who in this community has which sorts of skills and then let that emerge, you know, that kind of leadership emerge um, somewhat organically. Um, and so it's, it's, in some ways, it's, it's similar to that. It's sort of let's take inventory as opposed to assuming mm. certain communities are filled with deficit. What can people do? What do they know? What skills they have? How, you know, how are they connected to this person or that person? And so um, I think those sorts of models are, almost, are really... Um, it's hard to just say... Well, let me see how I want to say this. It, I think that can be more effective than also than simply saying we're going to um, be less racist by having different leadership, right? Because I, I do think that we have to change the way we think how we examine the people we encounter, what assumptions we make, and so actually doing the work of sort of drawing that out, I think is helpful mm-hmm. in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of my spiritual life um, and the work that I do, I um, I think of of all the work that I do as being one sort of guided by a higher purpose. I think being uh, I think the principles of of being humane and kind and loving and against domination and against brutality are what constant, you know, it's a big part of what it means to be a good person. And so all of my work is emerging from that place. And it's also, um, in many ways, emerging from wanting to continue the work of people who came before me. So... Um, I think of my grandmother who read every single day, who was one of the most brilliant people I ever knew, and who, for whom there wasn't really much opportunity besides being a domestic labor, and that there are many people in the world similarly situated today. And so, um, I, think, I mean, I could go through the book. Every idea connects to something she said to me, every single mm-hmm. one.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Um, and now, you know, my father, who dedicated his entire life to social justice activism, again, you know, I think it's part of the legacy of why I have to continue um, They try to do the same. Hmm.
0: So. Okay, let's, yeah, lovely. So, two more quick questions, yeah. Okay, here are my two quick questions. Amy Shear, Louisville, <laughs> You only K- get one. You can Louisville, speak in Kentucky. one and a half, I'll maybe. combine
3: them. Okay. Uh, as you've noticed, undoubtedly, you know, most of the people who attend the Chautauqua
2: Institution are Caucasian, um... I would like to know what you would say to the leadership of the Chautauqua institution so that they can um, create a space for people of
3: color to come and experience what, what the rest of us experience.
2: So, let me begin by saying I, I really, I'm always hesitant to make diagnoses when I don't know very much about a place. So, I'm going to preface by saying that I feel like in order to fully answer your question, I would need to be here for a longer period of time. But that said, um, You know, I didn't... As many books as I've read that referenced Chautauqua Institute, I didn't realize that this was here, that it was ongoing, and that there's this amazing intellectual and artistic life here in the course of the summer. So that's a piece of it, you know. I mean, obviously, there are many people here, so there are many people who do know, but my guess is that there are many, many people who don't, and there are... There tend to be... And this is really the case, I think, particularly for African Americans. There are spaces... Um, In the summer, that we identify as safe spaces when there's some mobility. And so, part of that, the outreach, I think, there was a period when several of the magazines would say, This is like, this is a safe hotel, or this is a nice place, this is a place where you won't be mistreated, right? And so, I think that's, you know, the Martha's Vineyard thing, um, uh, Rehoboth Beach. There are a couple of places like that, Union Pier and and New Buffalo in Michigan. There are a couple of places like that. And so, I do think a kind of uh, deliberate outreach would be meaningful, sharing information that, um, that it exists. And then I'm also curious about sort of um, transportation because, you know, <laughs> um, people of color tend to be concentrated in urban centers. And so this question is sort of getting back and forth seems to be like that would be a, like that would be a big one.
1: So. Hi, how much do you see the church as part of the problem regarding race in America? And how could the church be more of the solution?
2: Well, certainly, there are churches that are part of the problem. Um, You know, I think there are many churches that um, kind of peddle kind of racial fear, um, uh, anger, a sense of um, being under assault. That I think is that 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 put forward this idea that if the entire world does not comport themselves the way that you do, then somehow that means that your existence is under assault. Um, and so, um, but but those are but I but I also think that that's ideological, right? I mean, I think so many of our faith traditions are open to many different kinds of interpretations, Some of them um, that are loving and open, and others that are um, closed and hostile and exclusionary. And so, you know, if we think that the church is what members of church communities make it then I think for me the question is then how do we, in whatever our faith tradition is, enter into those communities and make them spaces um, that push us towards um, more equitable and more humane communities?
0: Um, I, I want to come back just to this question of the guidance you might offer to people here. There were some small things that I found really useful, helpful in your writing. Um, the idea that, and this very much gets at the idea of the American consciousness, that we are free, not from, but for. Mm-hmm. Freedom to, freedom instead of freedom to. from. Yeah. yeah, Because
2: I think that freedom, you know, there's, one, there's a kind of traditional libertarian conception of freedom, which is like, everybody leave me alone, don't bother me. And then I think a freedom, too, is a, is a kind of, I think, a liberation approach, which is really about how can we undo domination that gets in the way of us living healthy lives? How can we actually create things that are meaningful and joyful? And I, that's what I think of as freedom, too. Um, you know, if you have a conception of freedom that, that always sees other people reaching out to you as an incursion, then I think that's a very limited and narrow conception of freedom, right?
0: That we are free to create the world we want to live yeah. in. Um, and the other thing, the other small story, um, you, you talked about in your own life and with your sons that, there are t- that you even have found yourself ignored in a checkout line. Or just moments where you have felt this racial gap. And that there, there have been people who you know, committed simple acts of grace, right? Somebody who said something. Somebody who stepped in. Yeah. Yeah. And that that really is powerful and important. It's powerful and important, and I think we, we
2: discount the significance of those acts. But I'll give you an example we were in um, Mississippi taking, this was this summer, me and my sons taking a bus to Alabama. And a young man, we are in line getting food. And a young man, and he uh, was Honduran and actually was not, um, not fluent in English, just, um, steps in front of us in line. And I said, excuse me, um, we're here. And, and he laughed and turned his back. And, you know, this is not... Unfamiliar. I mean, learning the codes of American racism happens very quickly. People coming to this... Um, Toni Morrison has a beautiful quote about it that I can't think of, of it. And, um, you know, my sons... Always, you know, I, I, I get a little enraged at things like that. So yeah. I pushed his food yeah. down and stepped back in front of him in line. And, and, and my sons are now accustomed to that from me. Um, and they said, well, why did he do that? And he sort of was trying to explain. And then... When we got on the bus, um, I sat next to a a Honduran woman who was in the same group, um, and we had the most beautiful, loving conversation. She gave my children her blanket. She talked about um, trying to help get her daughter to stay in high school. And, And when I told them, I said, you know, if you read that single incident as reflective of the entire community, then you shut off the possibility of this lovely time that we had. Right. And also, um, you know, there's, a poten- there's potential that he might be transformed by witnessing her relationship with us right? um, on, that, on that ride. And so, I mean, I think those, you know, we think that these things are so small because the problems are so big. Um, but I think they matter.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. And you know what I really think I'm going to do? I'm not sure if I've ever done this before, but I want you to read some of your own words. And this was from that blog post that you wrote I believe it was a blog post or an article about after the Trayvon Martin events and I think this is the one that started with the question have you ever seen a small plant that has a splint holding it up so would you just read this and I'm going to let we're going to close with you reading yourself um
2: Because while on the one hand I am training my sons to develop resilience in the face of the racial injustice they will encounter, I am also training them to approach the world with full recognition and appreciation of the wide spectrum of human beings, some of whom are quite different from them. They know that they have an ethical responsibility to humanity, animal life, and nature, to care beyond their immediate experiences." We talk about gender and sexual orientation and disability and mental health, along with race, ethnicity, and language. They are encouraged to be critical and analytical, to use those enormous imaginations to journey into the interior lives of others. Together, we create gardens of possibility in the parched earth. If we grow the babies upright, they just might redeem us all.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, we would just like to thank you all for your patience and forbearance. I think we demonstrated today a little patience and prayer and good wishes uh, brings about a terrific result. Thank you, Krista Tippett. Thank you, Dr. Imani Perry. And thank you all for your goodwill. Join us tonight for Old First Night. I have to say uh, I'm I'm reflecting that uh, this institution was founded nine years after the Civil War as we connect with Ken Burns' extraordinary comments today. And tonight, the pastor who reads the Vesper service will be an African-American pastor at Chautauqua. And I think this is a significant... Okay, well, I'm simply observing that as the needle of history swings, in part it is because of the goodwill and the energy that you have exerted to help transform Chautauqua, and I think our board and our president and leadership now are aware of this. A number of um, initiatives are underway. They are creeping along at this time. We have an obligation to you to report back to you periodically. But I am encouraged, and and just because of the content of today's conversation, I felt compelled to share that with you. Uh, More to come, but keep pushing. Don't allow us to get away
3: with it.